on Friday, a handful of men from our church gathered for, for men's breakfast here in this room. Uh, and uh, during that time, I, I almost always read a portion of the passage of Scripture uh, that we're planning on studying on Sunday mornings. Um, and, and then ask the brothers uh, if they have any questions or comments that help me kind of get a sense for uh, maybe what, what would raise questions in the minds of, of members of the church or people who gather to hear God's word. Uh, so we read this past Friday, we read from Deuteronomy chapter 20, read the whole chapter, uh, but we spent most of our time talking about the last, last two verses of Deuteronomy chapter 20. Those two verses discuss how, you, how the people of Israel were not to attack or besiege, uh, in the words of the text, um, certain trees when you're besieging a city. So the last two verses of Deuteronomy chapter 20 talk about you're not supposed to besiege certain trees. Um, and we, we talked, we, we kind of laughed over that idea of besieging trees, right? When you go to cut down a tree, you, think, you don't think to yourself, I'm, I'm besieging uh, this tree. It's a, it's a humorous image, I, I think it is at least, when you think about it. Um, when have you ever thought about cutting down a tree as an act of war? Um, what we perhaps didn't realize at the time is that those two verses, in many ways, I think, encapsulate the whole thrust of the two chapters that we plan to study together this morning. Uh, and the thrust of, of these two chapters is simply this. So if you want the, the point of my sermon in kind of a single sentence, kind of a nutshell, here it is. The point of these two chapters is that God calls Israel to protect innocent life and properly prosecute war. God calls Israel to protect innocent life and properly prosecute war. Uh, this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from God's word. Uh, if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 162. And in order to kind of orient ourselves to the passage, let's refresh our memories just a little bit about uh, what the book of Deuteronomy is about and what we're considering together in this text. Let's begin in the beginning. Uh, the Bible began with God making the world and all that is in it. Uh, and then he set his people, Adam and Eve, in his place and called them to live under his precepts and generous provision. Sadly, the first man and the first woman sinned against God. And so, as an act of judgment, they were thrust out of God's good place. They were thrust out of the Garden of Eden. In God's kind mercy, he promised to raise up a son who would one day crush, trample upon sin and death. Who would trample upon the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve. Uh, this promised son would one day lead God's people back to God's place to live perfectly under God's precepts and provision. That's the story that unfolds in the Old Testament, and it is fulfilled in the New. The book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible, and so it's situated in the Old Testament. It is continuing the story of God keeping his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God told Abraham that he would give him numerous offspring, that he would give his offspring a land as well. And after rescuing Abraham's offspring from slavery in Egypt and leading them through the wilderness for 40 years, Abraham's offspring, also known as the people of Israel, are on the precipice of entering the promised land of Canaan, which is described in the Old Testament a lot like the Garden of Eden. It's a fruitful land, a glorious land. So God's people are getting ready to enter into God's place. 
And that's the situation of this book, that the people of Israel are ready to enter the land, and Moses is giving a series of sermons in Deuteronomy. And in this sermon series, Moses is reminding God's people that they are to live according to God's precepts, just like Adam and Eve were to live according to God's precepts in the garden. When they enter the land, Moses says, you need to live according to God's law. When you enter into God's place, the promised land of Canaan, you need to live under God's rule. Well, in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded Israel of her history, of how she had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And it was in light of that history that Moses called the people of Israel to give God their hearts. To give God their hearts. And then in chapters 12 to 28, that's, we're in the middle of that section, chapters 12 to 28, it flushes out what it looks like to give God your heart. What it looks like to live according to his law of love. It fleshes out what this means as we meet various statutes and commands and laws. These chapters, chapters 12 to 28, teach us, among other things, what God wants, uh, how God's holy character is to be reflected in every aspect of the life of the people of Israel. He wanted his holiness displayed in their worship, in their conduct, and in their generosity. God wanted his He wants his holiness reflected in how they celebrate their feasts, how they exercise justice, how they were ruled by kings and served by priests and instructed by their prophets. And as we turn to consider chapters 19 and 20 more closely, what becomes clear is that the Lord is concerned to see his holiness reflected in how Israel preserves and protects life. We even see that the Lord is concerned to see his holiness reflected in how Israel prosecutes War, And in the course of our study of these two chapters, we not only need to understand what these laws express and and the ethics that undergird them, but we also need to understand how we, as the the New Testament people of God, are are called uh, to apply these passages. How do we apply these scripture passages to our lives? We need to realize that we, we're not Old Testament Israel. Rather, the life, the ministry, and the work of Jesus Christ ought to transform and deepen our understanding of these laws. Even as these two chapters teach us that God longed to see his holiness displayed in how Israel protected life and prosecuted war, we need to learn that our lives are only safe in Jesus. Our lives are only protected in Jesus as our refuge as we wage war against sin. In the power of Jesus. That's what I hope we all come to understand today about Deuteronomy chapters 19 and 20. We're going to begin, we're going to study these these two chapters under two headings. Protect life and prosecute war. That's the outline of this sermon. Let's begin with chapter 19. Where the clear admonishment from God is that Israel protect life. In short, chapter 19 encourages the protection of life through providing cities for refuge for the innocent punishing the guilty, and promoting a truthful witness. Please follow along as I read about how the people of Israel are to protect life by providing cities of refuge for the innocent. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 to 13. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart Three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. 
You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger Pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally. Though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give your fathers provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, and lies in wait for him, and attacks him, and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there, and hand him over to the avenger of blood, so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. Well, while these verses are mainly focused upon the protection of life, I think we cannot fail to miss how that protection is cast. It's cast in the language of promise and provision. The chapter begins, I hope you notice, by stepping out on the foot of God keeping his promises to his people. God will bring his people into the land as he promised. Notice yet again that it's not a possibility, but a certainty. Look at how the chapter begins. It's not an if, rather verse 1 begins with a when. When God defeats your enemies and gives you this land to possess, you should establish these cities of refuge. Now these cities are uh, those on the other side of the Jordan, which they, are, are, they soon hope to cross. In chapter 4, if you remember from our earlier studies, Moses already gave Israel instructions for setting up cities of refuge in the east beyond the Jordan. So those cities were for the tribes who did not intend to live in the land on the other side of the Jordan. If God were not generous enough, so there's six cities of refuge. If God were not generous enough in giving Israel a land that would need these six cities of refuge, we learn in verse 8 that God may even give Israel more land. And if that's the case, then they would need to increase their numbers of, of cities of refuge. What's the point of a city of refuge? Well, a city of refuge is a place where an innocent man may flee if he accidentally kills his neighbor. It's where his life may be protected. In our text, he's called a manslayer. Uh, that, that sounds rather intentional, but actually it's not. He, he did not intend to kill his neighbor. There's also another man in our text. He's called the avenger of blood. It was usually 
the responsibility of the nearest male relative of the one who lost his life to avenge his death. The cities of refuge were set up so that the manslayer may flee to that city, escaping the avenger of blood, and there receive a proper trial. What's the point of all this? Well, the point of all this is that justice and protection were to be readily available throughout the land. You remember they were supposed to measure out the distances and and provide these cities at kind of an equal distance from each other. Why that? Well, you know, it's been said that justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, To that, I think we may add, justice unreachable is justice unavailable. But why would these cities need to be established among God's people? I mean... Are these not the people God chose to reflect his holy character to the watching world? Would they really need cities of refuge? Well, here I think is yet another place that the Bible speaks so truly to our human experience. God's people, though redeemed, though set apart and called to be holy, are still sinners. And the same is true for Christians, too. God's people, though set free from slavery to sin called to be holy, set apart, we are still sinners. Not only that, but we still live in a fallen world, don't we? Uh, We live in a world where accidents happen, where, where life is unintentionally taken. For a number of us within this congregation, this hits too close to home. It's too real. We, we know it too well. We live in a world where accidents happen, where life is unintentionally taken. And that is the scenario of the two men who go into the forest to cut down a tree. One's axe head comes flying off and it strikes his friend and kills him. It was a complete accident. It was a a freak accident. It wasn't intentional. And that's why verse 4 points out that he had not hated his neighbor in the past. This man was innocent of murder. He's not a murderer. And he ought not be put to death. He ought not be treated like one. So the Lord provided a justice system for him. A system that was to be near to him, readily accessible to him, available to him. This was to be a system that presumed his innocence until he was proven guilty. And if he was proven guilty, if he did hate his neighbor and did lie in wait for him to murder him, as verse 11 says, then he was to be handed over to the avenger of blood. If he murderously took another man's life, then God's justice required that his life be taken. And while these cities of refuge were to be a place of protection for the innocent, they were not to spare those who were guilty. No, the guilty were to be punished. Murder was not a sin that the Lord God would allow to go unpunished. The land would be considered guilty of that murder until it was brought to justice. We're even told why God requires this death penalty in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We read there, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's the reason why, for God made man in his own image. See, human life is precious and deserves to be protected because men and women are made in the image of God. Murder is, in the end, an attack on God. Within Israel, a murderer ought to be brought to justice. What we learn from these cities of refuge is that God calls for the innocent to be protected and for the guilty to be 
punished. God wanted access to his justice readily available, and he also wanted his justice to be faithfully carried out. Human life was to be protected, and that would occur through these cities and through the laws which required the punishment of murder. But how should, how should we, as believers in Jesus Christ, think about this? How should we, those who are living under the new covenant in Jesus, think about this? Well, certainly as a society, we should want and work for justice to be readily available, equal, and expedited in a timely fashion. Still, we need to think a little bit about this a little bit more personally. I wonder with whom you identify in this passage. Kind of set yourself in this passage for a moment. Think about it. Do you identify with the innocent man? Or do you identify with the man who murdered his neighbor? None of us, you know, none of us wants to identify with the man who, who murdered his neighbor. But Jesus challenges us on that point. So keep one finger here, because we're going to come back here. We're going to come back here a lot. Keep one finger here and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Um, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 810. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 21. In Matthew chapter 25, what you need, five, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, what you need to notice is that Jesus, he's preaching his sermon on the mount, his famous sermon, and he's explaining to his disciples what it looks like to live as a citizen of his kingdom. Look at what Jesus says about murder here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, if we are to take Jesus seriously, then we've got to come to terms with the fact that in Jesus' view, we are all murderers. Jesus, he's not doing away with the Mosaic law. Rather, he's showing us its deep underpinnings, what sustains it. Men murder because they are filled with anger and hatred. And the truth is, we've all been angry with others. And having been angry with others, according to Jesus, we've murdered them in our hearts. We're not the innocent who can run to the city of refuge and think that we're safe. No, if our case were investigated according to Jesus' standard, we would be cast out of the city and in danger of death, in danger of judgment. We must admit that we are the guilty and that we need God to intervene. We need a substitute to stand in our place and take our punishment. We need a refuge in our time of trouble, and our only refuge in the sight of the holy God is the one that he supplies and it's his son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, truly God and truly man, Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfectly righteous life. He was innocent, and yet he knowingly walked into the city of Jerusalem, knowing that he would die for the guilty. And when the time came, Jesus walked out of the city of Jerusalem, endangering his life by carrying a cross and dying upon it. And in doing so, Jesus took the punishment that our sins, that our anger, our malice, and our murder deserved. Jesus gave his life so that our lives, 
so that all who would repent and believe might be eternally protected and preserved. And three days after his death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. The innocent and righteous one was raised from the grave. So how do we escape God's wrath for all of our sin? By pointing to Jesus. In faith, we point to Jesus and say, He took all of my sin upon Himself, and He was punished for it on the cross. Because of what He has done, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Friend, turn from your sin. And believe that Jesus lived for you, the life you have not lived, the perfectly righteous life. He always loved. He never hated his neighbor. He lived the perfectly righteous life that you need, and he died the death that you deserve. And he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins if you would repent and believe. Oh, friend, take refuge in Jesus by believing in him and repenting of your sin. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Because we need to see in verse 14 that another precept is given. That's page 162 of the Bibles provided. Deuteronomy 19. Verse 14, another precept is given for the protection of life. And that is the, the promotion of the truth. Um, now, if you, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 19 this past week, and I would encourage you to, every week to read the passage that we're going to study uh, on Sunday mornings. If you read this chapter this past week, then I, I, I suspect that verse 14 jumped out of you kind of as out of place. Uh, consider this. We've just read, read verses about cities of refuge and the protection of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty. Now let's read verse 14 and some of the verses that follow. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 14 to 21. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life. I for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, do you see what I mean about verse 14? Feeling like it's just a little bit out of place. Why on earth do we have a precept or a rule, a law, about land when we're focusing on the protection of life? What does a command about taking another man's land have to do with taking another man's life? Well, we must remember that human life is a gift from God. And let's also remember that the land is a gift from God. It's a gift from God to his people. It's not that, is that not something of what the words, uh, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, imply? This is a gift from God. 
the land, as we learn from other Old Testament texts, was to be apportioned out as God appointed. It is his authority to, to give and apportion land. And let's also remember that life is actually sustained by land. You see, when you take another's, another neighbor's land, you're taking that which he uses to keep and sustain his life. Right? He, he works it for crops and produces food from it. You're, you're taking that which your neighbor uses to keep and sustain not only his life, but the life of his, his family and those under his care. Like a murderer, you're also attempting to rest, to take rightful authority from God's hands and place it in your own. Even so, taking a man's land reveals something about the heart, just as murder does. It reveals greed and hatred of your neighbor's life and well-being. Moving a boundary marker is also perfectly connected to the verses that follow, verses 15 to 21, because it's a falsehood, right? You've, you've, you've moved the true line. It's a falsehood that endangers or steals life. It may seem strange, but one sure way to protect life is to promote truth. In verses 15 to 21, we're told about what is required for establishing guilt in judicial cases. Two or three faithful witnesses are necessary. One is not enough. The laws of these verses are given yet again to protect the innocent and, you notice, to punish the guilty. They envision a scenario where a person rises up, he falsely accuses his neighbor in order to do him harm. This is obvious given the language of a malicious uh, witness in verse 16, the language of false witness in verse 18. But what was to be done to that malicious witness? Anything and everything that he intended to do to his neighbor, according to verse 21, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for it, considerable harm to life has been intended through his malicious witness. What we find in verse 21 has classically been identified with a legal principle called lex talionis, which basically means the law of retaliation. Here we see that the retaliation is to be equivalent to the harm that was intended, measure for measure, as it were. Given the overarching concern for life, it was likely that this principle was intended to discourage malicious witnesses from attempting to do harm to the lives of their neighbors. Do you remember looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount just a few minutes ago? Did you know that Jesus, he, he actually quotes, he also quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21 in that same sermon. There Jesus teaches us that we should be willing to suffer loss for the sake of his name rather than avenge ourselves. Jesus teaches us that we ought to entrust ourselves to God and to his just judgment. So we don't take up the law of retaliation. We entrust judgment and justice to Jesus, to God, knowing that in the end he will right all wrongs. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Once again, while this provision here in Deuteronomy threatens the taking of life, its purpose is rooted in the protection of innocent life. What is more, while each witness bears witness, he must remember that his testimony is being given in God's presence. Take a look at verse 17. As verse 17 communicates, the parties are to appear before the Lord. Friends, our whole lives are lived before the face of God. He sees and hears and knows all. The God of truth demands that his people speak the truth. That's certainly one application that we must take away from this text. Friends, brothers and sisters, the truth is scarce in our world. 
of all people, Christians must be those who speak the truth. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, the one who declared, I am the way, the what? The truth. Jesus declared that he's the truth. If we call ourselves followers of him, then we must be those who tell the truth, no matter the cost. Another point of application that we ought to take away from this text is also that we ought to love our neighbor. You see, it's only when we do not love our neighbor as we ought that we are tempted to speak falsely against him. And and if I could speak to the members of Arlington Baptist Church directly for a moment, brothers and sisters, let's give ourselves to speaking well of one another. While Deuteronomy 19 envisions a fairly formal context, that of a, a courtroom, and while we may be called to witness in, a, in fairly formal context in the life of our church, such as in the case of church discipline, we should be eager to speak well of one another outside of formal contexts. When we find ourselves drawn into a conversation about another brother or sister in Christ in the, in the hallway of the church, or in, in small group, in the grocery store, wherever it may be, Let's give ourselves to speaking well of our brother or sister in Christ or not speak at all. We must assume the best of one another. And though our lives are full of sinful warts and blemishes, we must remember that love covers over a multitude of sins. Some of us, all of us, can be angular from time to time. But we must remember that behind an an angular comment lies a love for Jesus. That's what we have confessed in joining this church. We have declared in becoming members of the church, I am someone who loves Jesus. We must remember that about each other. That's what we need to remember, and that's what we need to identify in our remarks about our brother or sister. What evidence of grace can you highlight in the life of another brother or sister? They love God's word and are endeavoring to follow it faithfully. They love to pray and pray for you and for me. What what can we say well about our brothers and sisters in Christ? What evidence of grace can we highlight in their lives? We surely want them to speak well of us. And so we should be zealous to speak well of them. We should also recognize the devastating consequences of false witnesses. Good reputations are stolen. Good reputations are stolen and lives are destroyed in our world through false witnesses. Just think, our perfectly innocent and perfectly righteous Savior, Jesus, was put to death because of false witnesses. Not a single one of us here this morning can escape the fact that at some point in our lives, we have not told the truth as we ought Our tongues have brought trouble on our neighbors or our siblings or our co-workers or our fellow believers. We have brought harm on others through a tongue that lacked honesty. We need to promote the truth and the protection of life with our lips. We witness with more than our lips too. We also witness with our lives. You know, earlier in the service, we read from Hebrews chapter, 19 verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 31. So turn back, keep one finger here. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. That's on page 1007, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to take a look at just a few of these verses. Page 1007. 
in this passage, the writer of the Hebrews picks up on this legislation of two or three witnesses. Uh, that two or three witnesses are needed to condemn someone to death. So then take a look at verse 28. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. The, the writer writes, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. See there, he's, he's picking up Deuteronomy. But then the writer of the Hebrews turns around and says something shocking. In the very next verse, in verse 29, he says, How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Brothers and sisters, we are to trample the serpent, not the Son. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What, what's the point? His point is that if we do something worthy of death in this life, like turning our backs on our neighbors and falsely witnessing against them, that pales in comparison to turning your back on Jesus. Turning your back on Jesus deserves a punishment worse than death. When we turn our backs on Jesus, we are falsely declaring that he's not worthy of our faith. When we turn our backs on Jesus, we are declaring that he cannot cleanse us from our sin. When we turn our backs on Jesus, we are falsely declaring that all he did to eternally protect our lives by giving up his is worthless. But that is not true. He is worthy of our faith. He did cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will eternally protect us, keep us safe, and bring us home to heaven. Brothers and sisters, do our lives bear witness to this truth? In union with Jesus Christ, we are to trample upon the serpent, not the son. So may our lives of faith boldly testify to the truth that he is worthy of all possible blessing and honor and glory. And may our lips bear witness to the truth that he is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Brothers and sisters, tell someone that this week. Tell somebody that Jesus is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I want to tell you. Jesus is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Jesus is worthy worthy of your faith. He did come from heaven and took on flesh to die so that you might live. He can protect you. You can't protect yourself before God. You cannot protect your life before the face of the holy God. You've got to take refuge in Jesus, and it will cost you to follow Jesus. It will cost you your pride, your guilt, and your shame. It will cost you your self-rule. And if you're honest with yourself for a minute, you've not been doing a very good job of leading your own life anyway. Come under his loving and compassionate rule, and you will find that he is no cold castle of a refuge. But he is a, a warm bulwark of heavenly love, never failing. Jesus is worthy of your faith, so give him your whole life and love.
Well, Moses, he has exhorted the people of Israel to protect life in the land. Israel is to protect life by providing refuge for the innocent, by punishing the guilty, and by promoting the truth. And in chapter 20, Moses pivots and exhorts the people of Israel to prosecute war in the land. This is our second point, prosecute war. So if you haven't done so already, turn back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Again, that's page 162 of the Bibles provided. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 19 and 20, these two chapters... uh, fit together are connected through several strands. But the most obvious strand in these two chapters is that the Lord is giving his people the promised land, that he's, he's dwelling with them. And as God gives his people the land, he's teaching them through Moses about how they are called to live holy lives in the promised land. This comes out in the first few verses of chapter 20. See if you can spot it uh, as we read Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Be of good courage. That's what these verses communicate, don't they? As we began looking at chapter 19, one of the things we first noticed was that God giving his people his land was not a matter of if, it was only a matter of when. That's how chapter 20 opens, isn't it? It's not a matter of if you will defeat your enemies. It's only a matter of of when God will do it, and he will do it. Israel has no need to fear, for God will put the fear and dread in the hearts of their enemies. That's exactly what God did too. So flip forward in your Bibles, one book, keep a finger there. Flip forward in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. It's page 178 of the Bibles provided. Take a look at Joshua chapter 2. Now, what we're about to read is Rahab, a Canaanite, so a woman who's a native of that land, Rahab, a Canaanite woman. We're about to read what she said. And remember that in Deuteronomy 20, the Lord told his people not to be afraid. So look, listen, and learn. Who is afraid when the battle comes looming? Follow along as I read just verses 9 to 11 of Joshua chapter 2. This is, this is Rahab, the Canaanite, speaking to the spies from Israel. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, Israel had no need to fear. But the nations of Canaan did. Go ahead, turn turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. uh, 162 there of the Bibles provided. Israel had no need to fear for God was fighting for them. That is why 
they could have a smaller army. You see, in verses 5 to 8, we're given a few exceptions or exemptions from battle. If, if one uh, has a new home, that's verses 5 and 6, or a new bride, that's verse 7, or a notorious fear, that's verse 8, then he's exempted from service. The Lord is, is giving the land to his people as a gift. And, and certainly it needs to be enjoyed. That's something of what we see here probably. But it also needs to be established before it's lost. Practically speaking, these exemptions guard the families of Israel from loss of land, loss of love, and ultimately loss of life. Uh, we see the latter, especially in the case found there in verse 8. Read verse 8. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Uh, maybe you remember the story of Gideon. Uh, maybe, as you recall, two-thirds of Gideon's army actually took this exemption in Judges chapter 7, verse 3. And what did God reveal? He's able to defeat any army wherever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, no matter the size. The Lord's great concern was not the size or strength of his army, but that his army was totally and completely devoted and dependent upon him. They were to be of good courage, and they were to be totally devoted to the Lord and his mission. See, verses 9 to 15 then outline how the people of Israel are to approach battle with cities that are, are, are far away. Uh, in cities that are, are near. And when we think of war, we, we, we often think of the importance of the element of surprise uh, and attacking first. But here, the people of Israel, for cities that are far away, uh, they're, they're told to actually lead with peace. It's interesting. This is a, a gracious and, and merciful offer for God to the distant nations. This is an offer from God to the distant nations. For the enemies of God will never fare well against him. They're destined to lose. So God offers them peace before the battle begins. What is more, the, the distant nations are being invited, really, when you think about it, into a relationship with the people of God where they would be exposed to the worship of the one true God, rescued from their idolatry. Still, as you can see with verse 15, this offer of peace was only available to the nations outside of Canaan. This offer of peace was not to be made available to the Canaanites. No, God's people were to prosecute their war with Canaan with courage, devotion, and determination. Nothing of Canaan is to survive. Take a look there at verse 16. But in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. As we've thought about many times in this study in Deuteronomy, the people of the land, of the land of Canaan, they were under the judgment of God. The nations in Canaan were worthy of God's judgment. Their, their record of wickedness is chronicled from the very first book in the Bible, book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, to be precise. All the way through, their, their wickedness is chronicled all the way through the fifth book of the Bible to Deuteronomy. The Canaanites were, were ruthless and rebellious. Their idolatry and worship of false gods enraged the one true God. Their sexual immorality and their promiscuity lied about the kind of loyal love that God demands from married people. Their infant child sacrifices, their infant child sacrifices preyed upon the weakest 
and most vulnerable among them. It is precisely because God is loving that he punishes injustice, wickedness, and sin. And the nations of Canaan had rebelled against God and had committed terrible atrocities. And so we, what we are learning here is that God is choosing to prosecute his just judgment on the Canaanite nations through the people of Israel. Israel was to be determined as they pursued this demand from God. They were carrying out his justice. Still, this does not mean that Israel should think that she is righteous. The people of Israel should not get a big head about this. No, another reason that the Lord is expelling the idolatrous Canaanites from the land is because Israel is prone to wander. Take a look at verse 18. Israel is to devote the Canaanites to destruction so that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Part of the reason, part of the reason that God tells Israel to prosecute this war with determination is for the sake of their purity, for the sake of their personal devotion to the Lord. Part of the reason that God tells Israel to prosecute this war in such full measure is to cleanse and wipe out the temptation of the Canaanites. You see, Israel possessed hearts that were prone to the same sins as the people of Canaan. If anyone or anything remained, they would be led astray. God wants his people to be totally devoted to him. Well, what about us? The, the New Testament picks up the idea of warfare and applies it to the people of God in our spiritual battle. When believers in Jesus are told to put something to death, we're told to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Paul was talking about our sinful and our fleshly desires. The desires that you hate and loathe. The ones that make you sick when you've made an alliance with sin. Consider what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the war that God has called us to prosecute with courage, with devotion and determination. We're to put to death idolatry in our lives. Just as the people of Israel were to eliminate idolatry in Canaan, so we are to eliminate idolatry in our lives. Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 3, in verses 6 to 10. He says this, On account of these things, on account of this idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, Israel was prone to the same sins, idolatry, and rebellion as the Canaanites. Believer, Christian, do not think that you are above the sins of your unbelieving neighbors, friends, family, and coworkers. Do not believe that you are above their sins. We must not consider ourselves more highly than we ought. We cannot keep alive those things which will lead to death. Take a look at the words at the end of verse 16, the beginning of verse 17. You shall save alive, oh, sorry, Yes, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete 
destruction. Brothers and sisters, what, what temptations do you need to devote to complete destruction? What temptations do you need to confess to another brother or sister in Christ so that they can help you put sin to death? And did you notice that this activity, this warfare, was an activity of the army of Israel? One warrior wasn't supposed to take up this war all by himself. No, other warriors were to come alongside him and together they were to obey the commands of the Lord. It's the same with respect to putting our sins to death. We need the help of other believers in our lives. I think this is also another reason why we're helped to have the same brothers and sisters in our lives over a long period of time. They, they have known us for some time. They know our blind spots and our weaknesses and can help us to remain watchful and active in putting sin to death. I've said this before. I'll say it again. What is most important in prosecuting this war with courage, devotion, and determination against sin is not what we refuse to do, but what we choose to do. This is what is most important in putting sin to death, fanning into flame our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering his death, why he died, why he needed to die. Remembering his death is what will strengthen us to put sin to death. Not only do we need to slay our sin, but we also need to commune with Jesus Christ. In fact, it is our union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to our slaying to sin. The great Puritan minister, Thomas Watson, once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is true. And I think the reverse is also true. Until Jesus is sweet, sin will not be bitter. So, so how do we further our communion with Jesus Christ? Well, through the means that he has ordained. In, in other words, through the reading of God's word, through prayer and fellowship with other believers. You know, we, we may also avail ourselves of other resources like, like faithful books and sermons and small groups and conferences that reflect on God's word, teach us to pray, and deepen our fellowship with other believers. But, but make no mistake, only insofar as we are directed to the glorious Savior, we be redirected away from our grotesque sin. It is when we look to Jesus Christ and his love for us that our devotion and determination to put sin to death is deepened. The people of Israel were to prosecute war against God's enemies with courage, devotion, and determination. But, but a funny thing happens at the end of chapter 20. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. In verses 19 and 20, we learn... That trees are not enemies. Follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you. Only the trees that you may know that are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. So, uh, prosecute war with devotion, with determination, and with delicacy. 
Maybe. Yes. Basically. It's the best D word I could come up with. Yes. Uh, the, the, the trees hadn't sinned against God. The trees weren't Israel's enemies. They weren't under God's judgment. And, and they weren't, the trees themselves weren't besieging Israel. And it would be useful, by the way, to have some food while you're besieging a city. That's the scenario. It would be useful to have fruit-bearing trees also long after the battle is over, long after the Canaanites are destroyed, or, or if it's a distant nation, long after uh, the, the other nations are, are gone. Now think back to chapter 19 for a moment and the cutting down of trees. Do you remember there was, there was cutting down trees in chapter 19? The trees, they, they don't kill anyone intentionally or unintentionally. Oh, but, but people in chapter 19 do, don't they? No, the trees don't kill anyone. Moses is not scatterbrained, brothers and sisters. He's crafting a, a fantastic sermon for his hearers. He brings out life in these trees. Did you notice that? Israel's despair to, to save the trees that give life, that give food, just like the land gives food. That land that a man might move a boundary marker so that he might steal another man's food in life. This land, we need to remember, is a good gift from God. There's a, a certain amount of, of delicacy that was needed in war to enjoy the good gifts that God intended to give to his people. Uh, Eugene Merrill makes a, a similar point, a scholar. He writes this, The real thrust of the passage, however, is to contrast the trees with humankind. Verse 19. It is only humans, ironically, in the image of God and the crowning glory of creation who sin against the Creator in such egregious ways, like murder, as to call upon themselves divine judgment. The innocent tree, tainted as it is by the fall of humankind, is nevertheless not culpable and should therefore be spared. The trees were not guilty of sin, but we are. And as we conclude, we need to think about what these trees teach us. These trees teach us that God is the author of life, and therefore He has authority over it. This is why He calls us to protect life. That's why He calls us to protect life by providing refuge for the innocent, punishing the guilty, and promoting the truth. These trees also teach us that God gives His people good gifts, gifts that are to be cherished and enjoyed in the land. When Israel prosecuted war against the distant nations, the food-bearing trees would be left behind and they would be a remaining blessing to them, a source of life and healing for those nations. They were a gift from God. These trees teach us that even as we prosecute war against our own indwelling sin, we ought to be careful not to cut out of our lives those means of grace that God is pleased to use to encourage and grow our life in faith in Jesus. These trees teach us that we are full of sin. They remind us of the very first trees that we see in the Bible. That place that was full of food, a blessing for God's people that we no longer have because we've taken from the wrong tree. These trees teach us that we are full of sin and that therefore we need the tree upon which our Savior died. But that tree, the cross, is not the final tree in the Bible. 
No, the, the salvation of these trees remind us of the consummation of our salvation. Did you know that there is at least another fruit-bearing tree that the beloved of God longed to see? Turn in your Bibles to the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. If you're using the Bibles provided, Revelation 22, it can be found beginning on the bottom of page 1041, Revelation 22. In Deuteronomy, we've been thinking about these trees. Moses told the 12 tribes of Israel to save the fruit-bearing trees, and let's read of the fruit-bearing tree that the saved are longing to see. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. This is John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servant, his servants will worship him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the tree that we long to see. The people of Israel were in the wilderness, on the edge of the promised land. And they needed to be reminded there was good land before them. There was a good gift that God was holding out to them, full of goodness. Similarly, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the wilderness of this world. We are on the edge of the promised land of heaven, waiting for Jesus to take us into it. And this is the tree that we long to see. For when we do, there will be no more need to protect life. And prosecute war against our sin. This tree is better than the trees of Eden and all the trees of Canaan. It heals all harm and engenders all hope. For when we see this tree, we will see the Son who died and was raised for our salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the, the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in him we hide ourselves and take refuge and find protection, eternal protection for our lives. Jesus is the refuge of the guilty. And so we flee to him in faith. And Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your spirit who strengthens us to, to put sin to death in light of Jesus' death, who, who strengthens us to keep walking home to heaven. So Father, we ask that you would continue, as, as long as you give us life and breath here, that you would help us to seek protection Seek the protection of our lives in Jesus and to prosecute war against our sins so long as we wander in the wilderness of this world. But above all, we ask, we ask for the Lord Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus, so that we may see that tree and behold you face to face. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.